I have a recurring nightmare, I must get it three or four times a month for the last 20 years, and it's that I was looking at the art here and the best art was being made there. This is the Hyperallergic Podcast. I'm Harag Vartanian. That's art collector Don Rubel. Along with his wife, Mira, he founded the Rubel Family Collection in New York City in 1964. It's now one of the largest private contemporary art collections in the world, and the foundation owns thousands of works by artists like Jean-Michel Basquiat, Jeff Koons, Anselm Kiefer, and Kara Walker. I met him early one morning at their private collection during the annual Art Fair Week in Miami, a city where they moved in 1993. The foundation already owns an impressive 40,000 square foot building in what used to be the largely industrial section of the city's Wynwood neighborhood. It's a place that has turned into a magnet for artists, new businesses, restaurants, and of course, inevitably, hipsters. They've just announced that they're gonna move to a new building in the Alapata neighborhood, which is just next door. And it'll more than double their space to 40 galleries and 100,000 square feet. I started our conversation by asking him, why did he need such a big building? Several things happen. Uh, One, like every collector, you run out of space. Also, the the neighborhood we're in now, which when we first came here in 92, 93, there was no question of anything related to art. As a matter of fact, we live right next to the collection, adjourning the collection, and our wealthiest neighbors were the two local drug dealers. (laughs) So that uh, this was absolutely not an art neighborhood. Now, it's kind of evolved and, and it's, it's, art and restaurants and it's got too fancy for us Mm. so we like being on the edge and but equally important we love we needed a place for more art, and and that's our what's our primary goal and and philosophically we believe that it's that it's not necessary to build museums america has the the greatest inventory Mm -hmm. of warehouses industrial facilities that are not being used anymore so we're actually we're looking for warehouse additional warehouse space, and uh, we came across this building. It was so fantastic. We said, "This is crazy. This is not warehouse space. This would make a, a great uh, collection building." It was seven adjoining buildings that they dealt in dry goods. There were more rice and beans than you ever seen in your life. Uh, an oil suppository. And and looking at it, we just fantasized this would be an incredible collection building. And in a way, it's it's sort of a uh, a model for what places can do who don't want to invest a ton of money into a uh, museum but really want to have a a cultural institution in their environment. Did you feel like you, you weren't showing enough of your collection? Did you need, like, a little bit more space to experiment? What was the drive? Well, part of it is at any given time, we could show maybe 1% of the collection. But more importantly, we always managed to show our temporary exhibitions, but we were never able to show out the permanent, certain permanent things. And I remember growing up, uh, I loved going to the Museum of Modern Art because I knew this room would always be the, the Gauguin room, this was the Monet room and the Monet room. Like the Katie Nolan piece you'll see upstairs, yeah. 
you know, with 12,000 bear cans. This, this is probably the, the quintessential piece of Katie or Charlie uh, Ray's or Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. And I think that people who come here to see young art and, and um, have to understand where we came from to look at it and where maybe they should come from to look at it. Art doesn't exist as a isolated phenomenon. It's part of a long history. So I think with the new building, we'll be able to show how we arrived at it. Plus, I think we'll be able to show people what we thought over the last 50 years. And the Katie Nolan piece, I mean, you know, that seems to be such a core to the collection. Now, how do you see that piece? Because, you know, I have to say that through the years, it's sort of my thoughts of it have changed. So I'm assuming the same thing has happened to you. She was the first artist to, to deal with the underbelly of America. Mm-hmm. You had people like Andy Warhol who were dealing with the, the, the social strata, but it always was the upper social strata. Mm-hmm. She deals with the really base, the, the core base values of America right. um, and celebrates them. Mm-hmm. But in, in strange ways, we have a number of works of hers. Some have wheelchairs as a component. Other pieces of hers have the, the facade of a Western saloon. Mm-hmm. Um, of uh, the A, the A uh, others will have an A, a beam that you use to, to keep people out of places. So that I think she's, but she's always dealing with a, in a way, a celebration of, of America, the base mm-hmm. values of America. Well, I mean, I think particularly after such a crazy election, I feel like that I saw that piece this week. And I felt like this, it became a different piece. Um, I just, because I mean, it's been such a nasty election season. Uh, that's, that's an understatement. <laughs> um, it's, it's in a strange, strange way, she uh, on the surface would be celebrating the base values of the, of the Trump supporter. Um, but I, I think it's the base values of America. I think we've all lost track of that. That, we're, we're, that what, what this really is, this is the essence of America. We are all immigrants. Mm-hmm. We are all working class. Uh, you know, except for some pop culture, we celebrate how people work, how people can get ahead in life. And somehow she represents that and, and our failures. Mm-hmm. And she represents all of those things. So what did you think about the election season and all this? I mean, because a lot of your work does sort of explore American identity. I have to preface by saying in the last 20 generations of my family, mm-hmm. we've probably eaten more than 19 of them put together, you know, and, and live better than the same. I mean, for us, America is a celebration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I get very upset when people talk about uh, making America great again it's an incredible place. Does it have its flaws? Yes, but in the words of someone, they said democracy is a terrible uh, form, but it's a hell of a lot better than any other form that's come along. Uh, I think in this election, the divisiveness has been incredibly detrimental. I think that, that, that unfortunately, we were asked to choose between two candidates. Um, neither were, were would have represented what I would have thought is the best of America. And everyone I knew, including myself, chose not to vote for someone, but to vote against someone. Mm. Uh, somehow I don't think that should be 
the basis of an election. We're sitting here in Miami. Fairs have become such a big part of the culture. Has that impacted the way you see art? Fairs are, are an enormous resource mm -hmm. because you know, you may have a gallery from Azerbaijan, you may have a gallery from uh, the edge of Romania, Cluj, for example, in mm -hmm. Romania. You would not go to Cluj without some reason to go there. What fairs do is it brings everything together, and you may see the gallery in Cluj that looks interesting, and then we go. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have three million miles on American Airlines in the last eight years, and it's wow. crazy, it's insane. But if we, it's as much about information. And you know that you go to Chelsea and it's hard, you can't find a dealer, <laughs> a gallerist. They're all hiding up on the third floor. <laughs> At the fairs, they're all trapped. They're sitting in the room. They love nothing better than to talk to you, especially, especially after the first day. First day is frenetic. Right. You know, everyone's running around. But if you go there, today is uh, Saturday, you go there, they would love nothing better than to have someone to talk to. So you find them almost like a way to be more accessible. It's more accessible. It makes a lot more accessible. Yeah. Now, do you find necessarily the best pieces of an artist in an art fair? Maybe, probably not. But it's that. But you'll find the pieces that you think are interesting, and then you can pursue it from there. Plus, I've, <laughs> I've never been down here. Or I've never been in Basel, Switzerland, or Fries that we haven't found something t yeah. that we really want right on the spot. So how about people who say that the art fairs are skewing art, you know, like making it more flashy, making it more kind of like st all about sticking out of the crowd rather than introducing, you know, smallness or, or subtlety and all these different things. Do you think that's happening? Look, of course, if you go into a supermarket, yeah. you know, if, if you look at the cans that, that, that have the, the, the flesh you, you cover, you'll respond to it. But it's kind of your job to get separate the wheat from the chaff. I mean, you, you, you have to spend time. You can't go into a fair and spend an hour or two. I mean, I, I was there Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm going this afternoon, and my favorite day is the last day because then the dealers don't want to bring these pieces back. So, so that, <laughs> then you could oftentimes get the, the best deal on the last day. Uh, plus, it is that communication. You really, really want that communication. Um, are fairs a necessity for the galleries? Yes, I would imagine that, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would say anywhere between 30 and 60% of their total sales for the year are not fairs. Right. Yeah, I've heard that as well. So now let's talk a little bit about your collecting itself. Your collection seems to be dominated by sculpture and painting. You know, I always, I drive my family crazy. I always say I hate video, okay? okay. And then one day they came to me and they said, we have 200 videos. <laughs> okay, and I said, that's terrific. Because I hate it, I'm much more directed before I would buy it. Picky even. Very picky on video. And painting, it's so passionate you want. Every collection, unless for specialist collection, will always be dominated by painting and sculpture. One, because it's easy to hang it up. You have a painting on a wall, you can right. hang it up. But I mean, I think the last two of the last artists that we bought, uh, Donna Huanka and Annie Emhoff, are both basically performance artists. But it, it's kind of tricky because you can't have a performance in your living room all the time. And what you, in effect, you oftentimes are purchasing a memento mori of performance arts. 
Paul McCarthy, going back to Paul, is really a performing art, performance artist. But, you know, how, how do you isolate that performance in time? So what is it in the performance art you're looking for then? Because, you know, people are also buying Tino Segal's performances and other things that aren't necessarily memento moris of an actual performance. Is that something that appeals to you? Is that, is that something that challenges what a collector is? It's absolutely challenging to the concept of a collector. Now, Tino Segal is, is easy, which is, a, I'll have to modify that, but it's easy as a collector because it's really a work of conceptual art. And you say, well, I have the certificate, which he won't give you, but you have the certificate and, and you have the potential to make the performance. But most people who collect are really drawn to, to the visual. Right. And performance is, is a different situation. Will it be changed? Something like Matthew Barney. Mm -hmm. uh, you take a performance, you put it in. Every video is a, really a performance. In, but even then, it's 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 hard. It's easy to collect them, but it's it's like you know if you if you collect and a lot of people collect wines and don't drink wines. Right. I'm right. one. I'm one of those. Actually. You're one of those. Yeah. But but. So then, what's the appeal of collecting them if you're not drinking them? That's the that's the problem. Well, what is it? Uh, all collecting is an intellectual exercise. Got it. I mean, if you collect stamps, what's the appeal of you know? Right chasing every stamp. It's, it's a defect in your personality, obviously. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you collect wine and not drink the wine? I like to play tennis still, and I play every morning. And if I drink the wine at night, I can't play as well in the morning. But I'm not sure that's the true reason. Right. So is it a compulsion? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no logical sensibility to it. Um, matter of fact, we once got together with an, another couple who had the same issue, and they said, when you're going to buy something, let's call each other so, you know, like, like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> and control it. It didn't work very well. <laughs> you uh, probably both just encouraged each other to buy more. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there was this, this collector in Boston, I, I can't remember his name, but we went to this charity auction together, and we were the only kind of collectors in the room. We said, we'll tell you what. And it was a phenomenal material. We said, you buy the first one, and we'll buy the second. You buy the third, we'll buy the fourth. Oh, great collusion. It works. It's wonderful. <laughs> so the first piece comes along. He bids. He gets it. The second piece comes along. It's supposed to be my piece. He bids and gets it. And I said, third piece he gets. Fourth piece he does the same thing. I said, what's going on? He said, I wasn't able to control myself. You know, this, this is collectors. This is their... Their, their lack of insanity. <laughs> you know, the other thing, of course, is a wonderful book in 1931 written about collectors, and they said the only thing collectors have in common is they're sociopaths. So I got to thinking about it, and I think, no, I said the only thing that collectors have in common is that report card in the second grade that says, do you do not play well with others, <laughs> you know. And this is, this is the essence of, of a collector. So is there competition among collectors? The younger the collector, the more the competition. I think what you realize after a while is that if an artist only makes one great piece, you're very lucky if someone else buys it. Mm. So I think there, there is a level of res, you know, respect and information. Having said that, which sounds very nice, uh, the truth is we all kind of like to 
hold the things in our pocket until we have enough of them before we let them out. It almost sounds like gambling the way you're saying it because you're kind of like showing your, you don't want to show your you cards. You don't want to show your yeah. cards. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it is a little bit like, well, because you're, you're afraid that, you know, in this world, if you show your cards too early and all of a sudden the prices get up, you can't afford to buy anymore. Right. You know, we always say we buy art from an artist that we love until it reaches a point we just can't afford it. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people see uh, the Rubels as sort of the top of the heap in terms of collectors. You know, so it's interesting to hear that you even feel that way. So is, has the art world sort of just changed in terms of feeling inaccessible even to such, you know, you important collectors? Of, you have to think of the art world sort of like a pyramid. Okay. They, they need players at every level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some that will enter the earliest level. Mm -hmm. Some will enter the uh, when it enters the gallery and then the museum, and then you have some, um, you know, you think of people like Eli Broad who, who won't enter it until it gets to a certain price point. The art world needs all of these, mm -hmm. uh, so that, that there's always a level. Like we love Jeff Koons' work. We bought one of the from the very first, I think we made a boy first or one of the, the, from the first exhibition, everyone thereafter for the next five or six exhibitions. But there came a moment when it was just out of our price point. Wow. Some people are also wondering whether we're kind of eating our young as, as, the, as an art world or worlds, you know, however you want to characterize it. Because, you know, some artists really are getting a lot of attention very early. And they're sort of stuck in this kind of way of doing the same kind of art. Are you seeing that? Is that something you try to challenge artists with? Okay, it's something that it bothers me a great deal. Mm. Okay, I think that artists like actors can't develop in public. Mm. You know, the Beatles became who they were because they played in some clubs in Germany for 15 years or 10 years before anyone knew them. I think it takes a while to learn this craft. I think if you're fortunate, you're such a cantankerous personality that even though the, the system is, is rewarding you, you choose to go in a different direction. And you think of artists like Frank Stella, who had, you know, was a universal acclaim early on, yet always made a different body of work every two or three years. So how did, did that start? How did you start collecting contemporary art? Because, I mean, you were collecting in an era where, was there a lot of social cachet to that at the time? Did you feel that? Or was it just something that intellectually or emotionally appealed to you? When we first started collecting, if you wanted to look at contemporary art, you could go to six galleries in two hours and see all the contemporary art in New York. It was, there was absolutely no cachet attached to collecting collecting contemporary art. As a matter of fact, everyone thought you were kind of crazy for doing it, which was wonderful for us because competition, there wasn't that much competition out there. <laughs> and and I, I would say I probably knew every collector, not in the city or this country, but in the world, who was collecting contemporary art. Wow. And what years are we talking about, roughly? This started, say? I would say, starting in the mid-'70s and going to the present. And it really wasn't too well into the 80s that that art achieved any level of fashionable. And was it because media started getting interested in it? Or what was it that, that made it a little more, um, I guess, larger? It's America. Media generates right. all interest in America. 
but it also, it, it, I, I remember, it must be in the mid-70s, where Aristotle, Rembrandt's Aristotle, contemplating yes. the bust of Homer was sold for a million dollars. And it was the front page of the New York Times. So that, you know, and then the skull collection was sold, and everyone was so excited because something was sold for $50,000, as if this was the greatest, you know, unheard of amount. Uh, so that, in a sense, the popularity of art, the, the, the broad popularity of art, was, may have been instituted through the media and the market. The fascinating thing about contemporary art, it is the most seductive thing in the world because we're dealing with our own times. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, do I love classical art? I, I do adore classical art, but it's never going to speak to me in terms of the issues, in terms of the reasons why it's, it's uh, generated, the way contemporary art will. And I think a lot of people came to realize this. And so now, what were some of the first, uh, first pieces that sort of spoke to you and made you realize that this was going to be a lifelong conversation you were engaged in? One, I have a flawed gene. I have a collector gene. So when I was four, I was collecting bottle tops and six. I still have my stamp collection that I started when I was six. Uh, when, when the military sent me to Japan, I, instead of being a good military, I ended up collecting hibachi chests and ukiyo-e prints, so I'm prone to that kind of thing. Got it. But having said that, I, probably the piece that generated the collection uh, was a Clemente. We, we were in Italy, and I think my wife was doing business there, and we, we were in uh, Modena and, dis and discovered the work of Francesco Clemente. And, and that became our, our uh, matching stone. That became that which all future pieces were m measured against, and they had to reach that quality. And it's funny because I was at the Phillips collection, and, and they, they told me that Renoir's boating party served the same function for the Phillips, and I've since mm. asked a lot of collectors. And for all collectors, there seems to be one piece that switches you over from someone who buys art to someone who really wants to mm. spend the rest of your life doing this. Do you still have that piece? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We call it our Sistine Chapel because it's a uh, it's a figure with an arm reaching across a godlike figure with an arm reaching across to touch the human underneath. Yeah. We we you never ever ever sell the pieces that if they, I don't like selling any pieces, but you never ever ever sell a piece that def, that changed the way you thought about something. And so where is that piece? I'm curious. It's, that's one of the reasons we're moving, because uh -huh. that piece is in storage right gotcha. now. Gotcha. Because we, it's very difficult. You know, since most of our shows tend to be thematic, it's very difficult to, to work different pieces into themes. Although for this show, kind of to celebrate our history of schizophrenia, uh, <laughs> half the, the building is being devoted to a new acquisition show of the la just works that we've collected in the last two years, partly to demonstrate the level of schizophrenia of a collection. I mean, it's a, there's no cohesive bond that says, well, if you go from A to B to mm -hmm. C to D. It's really that you're so struck by something that comes along. For example, at the, this Art Basel Fair, one of the most one of the most exciting things we found is a woman who's 76 years old and had never uh, had exhibitions before. But somehow she was relevant. 
Got when it. we first collected Paul McCarthy, he was 55 years old. At one time, we owned half of all the pieces that he'd ever sold. Wow. And we owned four pieces. So that, uh, you know, now we think of these people as icons. Yeah. But for f up, to the, up to the age of 55, he never sold a piece. Sometimes artists are so far ahead of the curve that it takes the curve a while to understand them. I wanted to ask you a little bit about New York culture in the 70s and 80s, periods when you were collecting, you know, some of the foundations of your collection, and you were a part of the scene. I assume, I mean, did you go to Studio 54? Did you go, you know, were you going to all the Mud Club? I mean, was this a regular part of your sort of life? Well, I was a physician at that time, yeah. so uh, there was a limit to how late I could stay up to go. It was, a, <laughs> it was more going Saturday, but... You know, Studio 54 I had to go to because it was a family affair. Right. And my brother was the founder of Studio mm -hmm. 54. And uh, he was very nice because he would preview all of the special events for my kids at 6 or 7 o'clock at night so they could see it because obviously they couldn't stay up to see it. <laughs> and it worked out well because I couldn't stay up either. But it was the first time you had the interaction of art with popular culture. Mm. You know, the, you always had the underground influence. I mean, when you went to Leipzig in the, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, the artists were the key figures in the social scene, but it was the underground social scene. It was very different than the um, legitimized nightclubs. And I think the artists always form um, some degree of rebellion. It was, but it was the first time in New York that you saw the, the really commingling of the arts. So you had the writers, you had the poets, you had the musicians. I mean, every artist had a band, the same way that every artist wanted to make a movie in the, in the late 90s. But because of that, you had this tremendous input of, of energy and, and culture, and creativity lives off creativity. And I think the same way in Black Rock, where you had uh, Albers and that group, uh, and Rauschenberg and, and you know and John Cage working together I think when you get that energy uh, Black, Black Mountain College I you mean? Black Mountain yeah. I said Black Rock no worries uh, when you get that energy joining together you, you, you get the best things look Rauschenberg and John's both made the best work when they were living together right I've only been following sort of your collection and you're collecting maybe a little over a decade um, so I'm a little new to it but I'm still sort of learning but I've noticed there's been more of a focus of international art and in the 70s and 80s it seemed like New York still felt like it was the center of everything at least in the art world would you characterize that as correct or would you did you say hundred percent correct but, you know, it was, it was almost a, a universal. I, I played professional tennis when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Every great tennis player in those days was coming from either the United States or Australia. But now if you look at tennis players, they're coming from all over the world. Very much the same thing in art. I mean, it would be very um, self-aggrandizing for you to assume that all of the great art would be coming from the United States. I think that... Uh, the, the spread of ideas, the zeitgeist is so profound that you find people from all over. I mean, um, Andrew Wakur from Georgia. What is mm -hmm. a guy in Georgia, in Russia, doing, right. making great art? He can because he now has access to things like yours, where where you you know information is now 
available to everyone everywhere. And so what do you think the role of a collector is in this? It's just kind of a bimodal type situation. On one hand, you have you serve the same function that a butler does in the <laughs> in, in a, you know in English royalty because without the butler, you know, the houses wouldn't run. Uh, on the other hand, selfishly, we never uh, almost never look at a young artist's work without meeting the young artist. Because what you're really trying to do is is think about is does this person have the ability to make good art ten years, fifteen years out there? And there's really no such thing as a great young artist. It it's a skill, it's it's you have to the technique has to join with the ideas. It takes time. What is it that you're looking for then? Is it the drive? I mean I'm trying to understand what is that spark you're looking for that tells you that this person is in it to win it? One, it has to be arresting. When you see it, you have to respond to something in the art. Mm -hmm. I can only answer by saying oftentimes when we see something that's almost there but not there, we say, you know what, when you think, it's all, when you think you've put it all together, had a major breakthrough, call us. The artist always knows. Mm. Okay, and, and they, they could fool you, they can't fool themselves. And when we get that phone call, and oftentimes we do, we'll jump right over there. I asked a couple of people yesterday, I said, what would you want to ask the Rubels? And it's so amazing to me that a lot of young artists are, I think there's like a tendency like, how do I get into that collection? How do I get in front of them? How would you answer that? Uh, make good work, you know, <laughs> make good work. I mean, we, I will say that in general, 99.9% .9 of, of the works that we end up purchasing will be purchased from galleries. You know, so make good work, have a gallery exhibition. Thank God for the internet. I mean, every day I spend two hours just going through images, but I tend to give more value to the ones that come from the galleries because, you know, they're very smart. They look at a million things every week. Uh, if it's something that they're interested in enough to, to, to put their weight behind, I will do it. Uh, you know, I'll always look at it. How would you characterize your taste in art with, uh, against your wife's taste in art and how they're different or how they're similar? First of all, it's more complicated than that okay. because every piece that we buy has to be agreed upon by my wife, myself, and Jason, our son. I see. Our daughter's an artist, so she's been excommunicated from this <laughs> process. Well, Why is that? Why? Um, by her own choice. I mean, she's making, you know, mm -hmm. what it was. George Bernard showed those who can do, those who can't teach. You know, <laughs> maybe it's the same thing. Those who can do, those who can't collect. We're very, going back to your question, we're very different. Mm. Every, every book in the library I've read or perused, no book goes into the library until I get to read it. Uh, I was up till four in the morning this morning reading a book about this, this woman that I was interested in her work. Um, I'm sort of the rationalist, you know, which scares me because I think of James Missioner every once in a while. My job is to f generally to find what we should at least look at, think about. Mira has the most marvelous gut instincts about work. I try, we don't try to burden each other with the, our separate tests. She has really gut emotional instincts. Jason came from an art history background. He studied art history at Duke, he, so he sort of combines 
he has her instincts with, with my tendencies towards the rational. But somehow the work has to satisfy those three mm -hmm. divergent qualities. Got it. Got it. So and then on top of everything else, we have to have enough money to pay for the piece. Yeah, right. So there are sometimes, and, and I, I can't reinforce this enough, where we've seen work that's very interesting. We had no open to buy. We just didn't have the money to pay for it. Right. How do you see your role now? I'm saying you guys look like you're at the top of the heap in terms of the attention your exhibitions receive. When something enters your collection, it gets really noticed by a lot of people. Has that changed your relationship to the collection? My mother told me when I was young, I was playing a lot of tennis. I used to play international tennis. She said, never read a write-up that has your name in it. Ah. I think that we work very hard not to, you know, for us, it's a new experience every time. I, I don't, it's no important. How can you be important collecting art? You're not making it. Mm -hmm. You're not showing it. You're just, you're collecting it. What defines you right now? I don't have a definition right now. I mean, I hope what defines me is, is I'm still seeking out the, the most exciting thing that's being done. Well, thank you so much, Don. I appreciate your time. It was my great pleasure. You, you're terrific. Thank you. That was Don Rubell of the Rubell Family Collection in Miami. Thanks for listening to Hyperallergic, the podcast. I'm Hrog Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. I want to give a special thanks to our executive producer and editor, Giseli Rigatau, our publisher, Viken Geikian, and the music you're listening to is by my awesome brother-in-law, who is also a Nashville songwriter, Garen Geikian. Make sure to subscribe to Hyperallergic, the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Until next time. <laughs>